I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey, everybody. This is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello, everybody. This is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi, everyone. This is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi, everyone. This is Charlene. Hi. This is Betty Seaton from Music E. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Fact Drink, and you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time, it's time. to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host, Rob. The face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello. It's the Is Rewind show with me, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. And welcome along to today's episode. Before I start, I've got to say a massive hello and thank you to everybody around the world listening to the show. I've got people in Poland, Canada, Belgium, Germany, Norway, Jersey, Burma. That's mental. Uh, Spain. Uh, where else have we got? We've got Denmark, Greece, India, Ireland, Italy, Japan. You name it, everybody's tuning in. Thank you so much for that. I really hope you're telling your friends all about the show and spreading the love. And if you do, I'll owe you a cup of tea and a biscuit. Now, don't forget, I've got some free gifts for you. So if you go over to... Check out the website, www.the80spod.com. If you go over there uh, and you go to exclusive to sites, there's tracks there from Fiction Factory, uh, The Lotus Eaters, and Modern Romance. And they're just exclusive to the site. So if you pop yourself in there, you can hear some tracks that nobody else has heard from the 80s. And the artists have generously donated them for me. Anyway, on to today's show. So, you know, they say don't meet your heroes. Well, that's absolute nonsense. I know that for sure now because I've just met Nick Vanid from the cutting crew and you could not have met a nicer person. Uh, we had a great conversation and a great chat and he's a really engaging guy. He's got some wonderful stories. So we cover in the interview like his early years uh, songwriting and uh, being a support act for Slade and Hot Chocolate and David Essex. And then we cover the, um, the Drivers. That was a great band that was in before cutting crew. And obviously we talked about cutting crew as well. And Nick's still working today on new material and tour and recut crew, and we cover that in the interview as well. It was great. I love talking to him. He's such a funny guy. It was brilliant. Anyway, let's check it out. So when you was growing up, was there a lot of music in the house? Was your parents into music? Was it one of those sorts of households? Yeah, kind of indirectly. Um, we've just discovered that we had, we both lived, me and Robbie lived like 25 miles away from each other down there on the Kent-Sussex border. That's in the south of England near the seaside. And... Uh, so I moved down here to Brighton and whatever from a place called Nutley, which is the Ashdown Forest, over towards Gatwick Airport Way. And that's where my mum, 88 years old, still lives. And, and in that house, I grew up with a granddad who, during the war, was a railway man, so he didn't go and fight. You know, they kept those kind of people back home. And he was the, uh, it was his band. He had the Contiki Dance Band, and he was the violinist in his own band. So he was very musical, and he used to tell me, he said he was crazy so because, you know, you play for these dances on a Saturday night, and there'd be four men there and 150 women. This <laughs> <laughs> so the, the ratio, sadly, of going to war, you know. So he would always be to take a lot of interest and, you know, just encourage, if you like. And then Dad was um, a builder, so no, nothing musical in his bones, but... He was your classic 1970s Friday, Saturday night DJ, you know, the mobile DJ. Oh. Um, so we had records everywhere. He would spend every last penny. He goes to record fairs in Brighton and come back. And I, I mean, you'd get this because you, you're a collector. He'd come back and he'll have like 27 inches. And it will range from Jim Reeves to the Buzzcocks, <laughs> you know, to a couple of songs he had to buy because they were in the charts, to something like, you know, Klaus Wunderlich, some German uh, Hawaiian guitar player. So it was a brilliant collection. I've still got it when he died. Uh, we decided we'd keep it. So there's 9,000 singles in my mum's house. <laughs> wow. I'm surprised it hasn't collapsed under the weight. <laughs> yeah. So there was music in the house. There was lots of music, lots of encouragements as well. That was very important when you're a teenager. You know, you need that around the house. 
And what record was it that maybe your dad had that first blew your mind when you heard that on the turntable? You're like, that is just amazing. Was the one that stands out? Yeah, I I can remember early early stuff that he bought. You know, probably like one, two, three, and four in the collection. If you like, one was Flowers in the Rain by the Moon, which just always resonates with me. A groovy kind of love by the Mind Benders, which Phil Collins ruined hundred years later. Um, but no, it was there wasn't any standout track. I mean, if you ask me that question in a minute about school, I can give you precise moments but no it was just the ability that every freaking night dad would be upstairs you know playing out his new purchases so there was music everywhere that's wonderful it just makes a happy home when there's music everywhere doesn't it it's a different atmosphere when there's when there's music playing so were you um was you interested even at a young age was you interested in music and writing or was it was it just one of those things that was in the house and you wasn't really bothered by it and by this time i'd had the um the fateful Spanish holiday and saw the horrible flamenco guitar. It was more like a plank than a guitar, you know. Yeah. And Dad said, "Go on, then." You know, here's Finkwig. So I brought it home, and you know, I pretended to play it. But I had lessons at school, right? And um, famously, I've told this. Well, I bet this is a common story, but it did happen for me. Me and my mate George, you know, we were in our first school band together. And we go to lessons, and um, we had great ears, but we couldn't read. We weren't very good at reading. So we'd look at the music and just pretend we were reading it and play it perfectly. And then, of course, the teacher would say, <clears throat> excuse me, you're actually looking at the wrong page, guys. <laughs> We've grown it, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I had high guitar lessons. I got pretty good at Spanish-style guitar. And then that day, that day when um, it happened almost in about a month of each other. One was in school assembly. Uh, some of the older lads, you know, I was probably 13 and some of the 16-year-olds were setting up music and uh, I heard um, Stay With Me by The Faces. Ah, oh, nice. At full volume. You know, they were obviously being naughty and turning up too loud. I, I was riveted to the spot, you know, especially that intro guitar. So um, that was, a you know, a, a, an epiphany day. And then about a month later, I was at a, you know, one of these religion discos and, and they, they play Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. And that was the day I said, right, it's time to stop fucking around with flamenco guitar. Got to get some trousers and uh, get an electric guitar, you know. And uh, I never quite mastered it. But yeah, they were pivotal days. The, the, you know, one of the things I was saying, I hope, I hope it's taken appropriately, is that for me, ever since those days, if music has, it, it with a small s, some kind of sexuality to it, that's when I get it. It could be Bonnie Raitt. It could be Led Zeppelin. You know, it could be Rod. It could be, it doesn't have to be a woman. But if it's got some kind of, you know, small s sex in it, then I get it. I hate bands that are like, like Depeche Mode, one of the sexiest bands in the world, I think, because there's just something they exude. I hate it when you see bands who think they're sexy. <laughs> and music, I don't mean look, I mean musically. I'm not talking about the look. I don't think, you know, about that. The look, it, just the music has to have some kind of thing to it. Um, so Led Zeppelin, uh, Faces. Uh, yeah, so I got rid of my sexless yes and um, Van de Graaff generator and uh, grew up. <laughs> I mean, Zeppelin, I mean, Robert Plant, he just oozes sex with the speakers, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, when Cutting Crew finally, Cutting Crew Mark 1 finally toppled over, Kevin, my guitarist, Kevin McMichael, who's not with us anymore, bless him, um, he immediately joined Robert Plant's band wow. and uh, recorded a couple of albums and toured with him. So I would often go around to Kev's and Robert would be there, which sounds like name dropping, but that's what happened, you know, and very, very charming, very interested man very um uh determined to always move his music forward you know never wanted to go back he, he'd begrudgingly play you know um a whole lot of love or something um but always as you know going on to those eastern moroccan type things and i think kevin got the, the gig well i know he did him and uh, fran from the advice got the gigs because they were alternative you know when when robert said to him you know play me something kevin played him old e-tuned guitar Moby Grape songs, you know, from the West Coast of America. And it was like, wow, nobody plays like Stephen <laughs> Stimulian. And I think he got hired on the strength of him being 
not obviously the guy. Yeah, so yeah, just that little tilt to the left makes you stand out. I mean, Robert Plant, you're right, he just evolves constantly. All of his albums are different. And the Shifting Sands is just like a country album to a degree. And then you've got the Moroccan stuff. And then he's sort of gone back to rock again in a weird way. Amazing. And even though, he's, is he, what, 80 now? He's just, he's constantly evolving. Staggering, isn't it? And, and in my own little way, I've always, always done that. And and I'm sure there will be managers out there saying, to your detriment, Van Eddie, you know, because I can't, you know, the, the, the very first album was seminally 80s sounding, you know, and we that was the biggie. The scattering was a slight evolution from that, you know, trying out folk bands and darker lyrics and all that. But then on from that, I just kept changing and changing it to the Add to Favourites album just what, four years ago. It was Girls and Brass, and I loved it. And, <laughs> and the true fans loved it. But I can see a manager going, hmm, why don't you why don't you write something like you did back in the 1980s? <laughs> it's my prerogative. <laughs> So you, is it right you was working as a hospital orderly for a little while? And was you writing around that time as well? Would you concentrate on songwriting or were you just working? I think a few, a few songs. Well, actually at school, when I was uh, sort of 15, 16, I was the, the guy that wrote the songs for the school productions, you know, so it was a really cool, comprehensive school. Um, you know, grammar went bust and we had these great, um, you know, young teachers coming in, no streaming. So you were all in together, you know, and you helped each other along. Great drama teacher, great music teacher, which you've seen maybe on BBC recently, Paul Harvey. He was my school teacher, and he's the guy that has Alzheimer's and wrote the the, the, the four notes piece. So it was a really beautifully lucky combination for me to have that school. So I was already writing songs which apparently weren't shit. You know? <laughs> I mean, then, and that was good enough. You know, that was good enough that nobody walked out or puked up. Um, <laughs> So when I left when I left school and worked in the hospital, maybe there were a few songs mucking about, but no, I was your 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 classic one man band down the pub, you know, banging out songs, but slipping in a few of my songs every now and again. Yeah, just testing the water. I like that. That's a great idea. And then you were discovered by Chaz Chandler originally. Is that right? That's where it's where it all happened. Yeah. So when I was the orderly in the operating theatre, um, that's another interview. <laughs> Uh, I used to play at what they were called the hospital apartment, the guinea pig on a Thursday night. And, you know, you couldn't move all the nurses and, and senior doctors as well. It was amazing. They'd all be there. It was, I obviously did something that made everybody have a good time. And in the interval one night, this six foot four tall guy in a, you know, million dollar suit, not suit, never a suit with chess, a million dollar coat would come over and he put his card on my amplifier and said, I like what you're doing. Give me a call in the morning. And uh, I went, all right, 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 you know, and, and I don't think he even read the card until the end of the night. And it said, Chaz Chandler, Barn Records. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and two weeks later, I left the job. Two weeks, I swear, maybe two and a half weeks. I was on tour with Slade singing in, in uh, 20,000 theatres in, in, in Poland. Uh, so really weird jump that was. And was you just was it just an acoustic at this point? And, uh, and a kazoo. And a kazoo. Wow. <laughs> I wanted you to say that bit. <laughs> in one song, in one song. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I didn't know what was going on. So I, I, I was brave. I didn't play. I um, maybe played half and half covers and half my own songs. And yeah, I stood up on it. Came back to um, England and Slate said, you know, do you want to do the, the, the tour with us in England? And I was like, yeah. You know, that'd be great to play all the local places, you know, up and down England after having gone down really well in Poland. You know, English boy, play guitar, cute boy. Uh, I walked down in Withenstein near Howell, I think it is, and got bottled off by the splitting. <laughs> literally, one hit me right in the head. Um, I And they were like semi-skinhead fans back then, you know. Yeah. So it was pretty ferocious. And Chaz would stand on the side with his arm crossed going, this is your indoctrination. You've got to stand there and pick it. And there'll be gobs spitting at me and everything. You know, I was looking back on it. Fabulous. Fabulous days, folks. Fabulous days. Wonderful experience. So did Slade literally have the skinheads at that point? Were they? Was it the skinhead period? Or did Dave have his... They, um, no, they, they weren't skinheads anymore. They were glam, but they, they still had that, you know, so skins would follow them, you know. It's not skins, you know, the, the, the 12-hole Doc Martins and the angry... 
tattoos. Do you know what? To be very fair, because I know that sometimes these things get out, it was horrible the first five nights. And I swear, or, or I will fall dead now of an illness, by the end of that tour, I was getting on calls. Because wow, they just nice. kind of, they respected me, and I was changing my set. <laughs> <laughs> Flying it off stage by the curtain, yeah. <laughs> yes. And big cage, you know. <laughs> Did Chaz say what it was that brought you to him? Because I know with Noddy, it was his voice. Did Chaz sort of ever mention what he saw in you, why he wanted to sign you to his label? I think it was, I, no, I certainly don't know. I'll only guess. I was young. I was, um, I could write good tunes. And he was a big time producer. And I think he thought he could make a hit record. Uh, we never did, you know, but um, no, I'll, I'll never know exactly what it was. But he was, again, one of those pivotal things. You know, imagine playing in a little shitty pub in East Grinstead with uh, d- doctors and nurses dancing to. American Pie, and then Chaz Chandler's there. And he was only there because his son was in that hospital having an operation. So, you know, if you're a young musician listening now, you know, happenstance really does happen. If you if you put yourself out there enough, you know, it's not going to come and knock on your door. But if you are out there gigging or, you know, at a gig or whatever, selling your wares, it will come. It really will come. Yeah, or you become a podcast presenter. <laughs> I used- <laughs> Oh, good for you, my friend. I used to um, I used to play in a band, and uh, we were like a pop band. And my friend got us a gig supporting like the, a Hell's Angels event or something. <laughs> and we had the classic. We 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 set up. We started. I think we got about half a verse in, and then we looked up, and the tent was empty. And, <laughs> <laughs> and there's just a guy selling buckles. That, and uh, so we played to an empty tent for about an hour. And the guy that sold the buckles at the end, he just went, oh, "I thought you're rather good, actually." <laughs> so, so you're right. Yeah, well, you, there's that kind of badge, isn't there, that you wear, and you're not you're not supposed to be seen, you know, watching that the wrong kind of music. But I'd say it's a bit of a similar story, but it's a good one. We got hired to play in Hanya in Crete about five years ago, yeah. and um, you know, it was a, a rock festival, and we, we we are not a pop group for sure. You see us on stage; it's a rock band. Yeah. So we we went over there proudly with our you know our died in your armses and been in love before us and went for the Mockingbirds. And as we pulled up, we could see that the poster, everything was like death metal logos, you know. <laughs> and, and the headline band were called Rotting Christ. <laughs> so we went on in this remarkable stage outdoors, looking over the sea in Hanio in Crete, with this, with 4,000 death metal fans. <laughs> and again, the same thing happened, you know. It was a kind of grudging respect and then by the end you know they were, they were, they were i don't think they would take i don't think they were taking the piss but they loved it so um yeah that was another rite of passage guys it's true you like you never know i was a dj in a club for a little while and i remember i was djing one night and i did the the sort of party floor and there's this big i mean he had to be about six or eight skinhead and he just stared at me for ages and ages and i thought oh this is going to go one way or the other so after about two hours he comes striding over to me and he and he prodded me he went oi mate and i was like I went, yeah, hello. He said, um, can you play Britney Spears one more time for me? I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, t- second track up, I'm playing it. He's in the middle of the dance floor, jumping up and down, going, legend, legend, and pointing at me. <laughs> it's very, if people are shy, it's very easy to misread them, isn't it? Whether yeah. it be in life or, or even our business. And I remember one scary night, we were playing with Marillion in, um, in Milan, I think, and uh, we were supporting... And that's a hard gig because they're really fans of that. And Fish had just left. Right. So Steve Hope was on his first tour. He's sitting backstage with me, both <laughs> fighting our nails because they can be pretty hard. And there was a guy down the front and uh, we, we, we bombed. Yeah, we, we went down awfully. But there was one guy down the front who was doing what your skinhead friend did. He was just giving me that, I will kill you. I will <laughs> kill you. And after the show... I'm backstage and he gets in the dressing room and I called the tour manager over and I said, for fuck's sake, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. please get, get, you know, this, I'm, I'm not come to order. This guy was like, hello, Nick, I love you. I love your voice. And he just, his eyes betrayed the truth. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? I love that. I love that. Francis Stunnery said, um, metal fans are the nicest you'll ever meet. And I do agree with him. Everyone that's been a metal fan has been wonderful. 
Very, very, very lovely. So after that, you, was it right you toured with Hot Chocolate and David Essex as well and Alan Price? So you were thrown literally right in the front of the biggest crowds you can imagine because David Essex was huge in the 70s as well, wasn't the Hot Chocolate? What an amazing place to be. Yeah, I was lucky. Chaz had all those contacts. You know, he knew Mel Bush, who was back then a huge promoter. Um, and they were very good to me. And, you know, it wasn't my finest hour. It was just going on every night and again on my own. Um, I, I got myself a nice little set of my songs and a few really nice to do. The Gallagher and Lyle song called Shifting Silence that always went down well. Good Lord. I, can't, I haven't thought of that for 30 years. But yeah, and I did it. And, and the, the, the bands were always gracious. You know, Hot Chocolate was on the tour bus with them, watching them all getting up to mischief. And David was very kind. Yeah, they, they were good days. But, you know, absolutely meant nothing. I was just kind of... We were recording an album that eventually flopped, you know. So those were they were important discovery days, but meant nothing really in the in the climb, if you like. Okay, I saw some wonderful footage um, of yourself. I think it's Tiz was doing uh, Rock and Roll Fall. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> and uh, it's on YouTube. It's brilliant. You've got like a little bowl cut. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> but what what you see is a young man really going for it on that. You had such like. When you talk about sexuality early on the records, I think you was doing that by osmosis because you were literally winking and you're sort of playing to the camera. And I think anyone that wants to see an early version of those songs, would you do Rock and Roll Fall at that, on those tours? Was that one of those songs that was? Yes, on? That, that would be. That was the, the single, if you like. And I'll tell you a story about that. That's where this happens all through, even up to five years ago, when I uh, refused to play with the band because they were still not my band, but our band. I would do it on my own. You can fall back to doing it on your own. You're, you know, you're lucky. You've got to have a few shots to do that. But that that day, Rock and Roll Fall, uh, Mike Moran was the um, you know, very famous uh, record producer and arranger. He he had a band for me. And um, so I was standing in front of them and Chas came on and halfway through the first round, we said, we are not using that bunch. And that was that. So I did it on my own. So that's why I'm strumming the hell out of the guitar and doing all these horrible moves and things because... I was expecting to be in a five-piece house band. <laughs> How old were you around that period in that footage? This is 78. How old would you have been roughly then? Was you in your like, late uh, teens? Yeah, I was 20. Wow, it's amazing. I mean, you, you don't look like a guy that's not been doing it very long in that footage. It's amazing. And then, because that's quite a folky song. Then you had uh, I Only Want to Be Your Number One. That's quite a rocky track. You seem to sort of just evolve a little bit, almost straight away. That was Chaz. That was Chaz. Let me write. I wrote everything, and then he'd bring in everything but the kitchen sink. Oh my God! She actually listened to that. You know, you could not get another instrument on there. Um, it was, uh, yeah, there were, yeah. You know, again, I'll say this: that that whole period was important because I got spotted, and I was learning my chops. I was learning about a studio. I was learning about working with, you know, musicians I'd never met before on the hop. You know, having to go on stage survive or go down really well shaping your set working out the pacing of a set all those things were very important but with absolutely nil success you know and i don't i don't um i'm not looking back on it you know uh badly at all but it was those they were just important days for uh yeah let's like to say learning what not to say you know turning up at these awful p these uh big meetings where nobody knows who the <laughs> you know, there's hot chocolate there, and there's David Essex there, and I'm some bloke in the corner. And I learned you just have to be gracious and take your turn. <laughs> I mean, I really like the B side, uh, Dyson. I think that's a really good track. So I presume you've got this on vinyl, I've got it somewhere. Yeah, it's in, in my bit. So I have got it, but I had to find it on uh, YouTube because it's it's quite a disco track as well. It's almost like he was covering disco just to make sure. <laughs> Rock on one side, disco move on the other. Move on, move on with this story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a fantastic track. You got to check it out. It's it's really really good. And then was it from that you went on? Um, was a member of the Drivers? Yes. So this was when things started to be fun for me. I mean, real fun. Yeah. Uh, the Chaz put me out you know, on another tour on my own. I said, Chaz, I, it's, I've got so many new songs I want to do, and I can't do them on my own. And um, he said, Well, if you, <laughs> he said, Well, if you pay for them, you can bring the band on the road. No, that was Chaz all over. <laughs> so I said, Okay, so I will. Learn. So I formed this band, The Drivers. Uh, so back then it was Nick and Van Eed and The Drivers, hence The Drivers. A little stupid pun because we thought it would be just one 
one tour, and I think it was David F6 or something we did with the full band, three piece. Right. And of course, that, yeah, I, I don't care even if the David Essex band had been noticed the difference. I was loving it. You know, suddenly I had my old telecaster on. It was a bit more rocky. Um, and um, I, I could write songs with a broader, a deeper breath. <laughs> I mean, like Tears on Your Anorak's fantastic. And then, I mean, Talk All Night, I think Talk All Night's fantastic. That's a really, really good song. It's, it's a really good band. Like, I was watching it on YouTube. I couldn't find an album. I don't know what it was. You were doing five or six tracks, I think, and you had, like, these glowing frets. I don't know if it was, like, a promotional video or something, but you could see the fun in that footage. Yeah. This, if you go to the Facebook page, you'll see all, uh, they're all four in a row. And only about a month ago, I put them all up. I've kept sat on them for years. Yeah, they, they're, it's 1982 in Canada, you know, with not a lot of money to to make videos. We had four videos made, you know, it was pretty cool for an un- yeah. unknown band. We had a hit in the, in Canada with Tears on Your Anorak. So, yeah, the video director put this fluorescent tape on the frets. I thought it looked rather cool. I, I didn't think we were going to use them in every video, but we did. <laughs> um, and they were good. They were quirky. They were, we, we were pretty wild, you know. If you ever hear the live version of The Drive or something. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The best fun I ever had, Rob, I can tell you now, even turning up at the Grammys in my silly suit, the best fun I ever had was the drivers. Do you want to talk about fun? You know, Cutting Crew was I'm proud of, and there'll be a cost of and lots of fun and lots of untellable stories. But the drivers were just... You know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, packed out, Tunbridge, Nutley, you know, all these pubs. Where you, you couldn't fit another soul in, PAs falling over because everybody's pulled away. Um, me playing manic guitar. Um, uh, yeah, we were, it was a kind of culty type band, you know. Uh, I mean, you can see the energy and you can tell your three guys love playing together. It's brilliant. You could just see the way you're bouncing around. It's, it's, it's really good footage. Um, people listen to the podcast, get yourself on YouTube and find it. It's absolutely fantastic. And then you had an album. Was it Shortcuts? Did you release an album? Yeah. Yeah, that was released ostensibly in Canada, but you, you came over here as well. Um, I could say it was a it was a proper, proper Canadian hit, the single, so it sold pretty well and gave us the um, ability to tour around Canada. Um, so we were, yeah, we were traveling around Canada. And, of course, the, famously, there you go, folks, the youngsters in the audience, happenstance is that, we're playing in Nova Scotia, you know, and New Brunswick on the east coast of Canada. I've never even heard of these places, you know. Um, I love Canada. Uh, I loved and always and will love Canada, but these are behind neutral Toronto, Vancouver, and places like that. And uh, we're playing a, a club called the Misty Moon, which in those days, you know, it'd be 2,000 people on a Friday or Saturday night, massive. Every weekend, thousands of people turn up to watch the big band in town fast forward and um, because we were the we were the the stars in town they supported us that night and and i met and literally fell in love with this guitarist in their band you know he was playing a guitar synthesizer so he could play normal guitar and then every now and again this is like 1982 remember 1982 three suddenly i'd hear these strings i go where's the strings and then i walk Horns, Carol. used to play that Human League song. And it was Kevin. And I just, I, it was astonishing. And so we met um, after they finished. And the, backstage, I said to him, I, I just want to tell you, and I've never heard a guitar like that before. You know, he's with a cigarette. He's like, very suspicious. He's like, mm-hmm. 
And I said, what's your name? And he said, Kevin. And I said, great. I said, what's your surname? And that doesn't mean anything in North America. They say second name. So he went, Kevin. And I said, so so your name's Kevin, Kevin? He said, no, no, no. So we laughed about that. And then uh, he said to me, what part of Australia do you live in? (laughs) Because he thought, I can tell by the tears on your anorak. The chicken the never ever cookie coming back. He thought it was an Australian man. <laughs> All the Brits get that, don't they? <laughs> so yeah, we met. That's wonderful. So the drivers winding down, was that a natural thing to happen or was it just Yeah, it was really. Um we were, you know, Brits living out in Canada for two years really. Um some members of the band wanted to get back to their loved ones and it, it had kind of the record company had gone bust by then, which is right. part of this other story. Um, so we, it, gave, it ran its course. We came back, played a few homecoming shows in Britain. And by that time, I I was on fire with um, writing. You know, I bought keyboards. I was writing keyboard parts. I was, my voice was changing. Um, my abilities, I hope, were getting better. And I needed to, to to move on, really. You know, nothing wrong with the drivers, but we had three years of chaos, and I enjoyed every moment of it. You know, that's great. And then obviously you started to put the cutting crew together. And is it right you got the name from a Queen article? Is that right? Reading about Queen in the studio. You've done your research, but the original name came from something in Sounds magazine. It was um, that old cutting crew, Queen, um, looked like they're going to be getting out on the road. It was because they didn't tour for few years and only made records so they were a cutting crew cutting albums and i just thought it had a good ring to it yeah. yes nice i love the fact you got the synergy for your name from another band that's that's really really cool like talking heads and radiohead and um, and back in those days queen uh up to so the end of night of the opera were, were just you know i knew every note and every word and every harmony it was sensational about it. I didn't like later Queen much, but uh, that's another interview. You get Cutting Crew together. Um, did you have the songs pre-written when you got the band together or were you writing as a band? Half and half. Um, I had this amazing six months when Kevin had said he would come over from Canada and he'd make the big moves. He couldn't do it immediately, you know, because he had he'd got a wife and a child. And, um, so I wrote... Died in Your Arms, been in love before, went for the Mockingbird broadcast. I've written nearly all of the broadcasts at home in my own studio and played them as well as I could. Yeah. Uh, Kevin came over and he, that was the initial thing. Kevin moved over and looked at all the songs and, you know, <laughs> and said, You expect me to play that? You know, because I'd written like six guitar parts on top of each other to make it sound good. And he would have to unweave all that mess and work it out into one or two guitar parts, which he did with his eyes closed. He was a very, very, very good guitarist, very underrated guitarist, because yeah. um, he was a flashy and you know didn't didn't go for the big sort of interviews of being a guitarist. But by God, that that boy was a wonderful player. And also crucially with him in that stage, and and again, I don't care how Uncle Nick this sounds, but for any young people listening, you know, if your writers are in the studio often people talk about, you know, what gear you used or, you know, who did the vocals, who did, who did they, how did, who wrote the lyrics. Much more important than all of that is the subjugation of having an ego when you're writing. Because if you've got one guy on one side of the room going, well, that's my words, take it or leave it. Or, well, they're the chords, you know, take it or leave it. You'll never get anywhere. You know, you have to give and take. And these Beatles uh, videos that we've just seen released, you know, the the um, get backs, you really see it between Paul and John. No, try this, no, try that. And none of them were going like, oh, nobody was taking that. And this was when they're supposed to be having trouble with each other. That's right. It was writing beautifully together. I remember Kevin would take my songs and turn them upside down, 58, 60 versions, you know, and he never got, no, how many more do you want? And then 61. <laughs> would be the version. Beautiful, beautiful. Was the album sort of themed to a degree? Because, um, I, I mean, if we could touch that in a minute, that'd be great about writing um, I Died in Your Arms Tonight. But Been In Love Before, was it the same subject matter? Was you writing about the same person or the same feeling? Was it, Or was it just just happened to be songs that bookended each other? No, I have to say those songs were really like, um, they came from, you know, like, who's it who said it? Um, boy, David Gray. He said they drop. Sometimes they just drop. 
and I know what he meant from the sky, and I don't mean that to say from heaven, you know, but <laughs> if they just hung, they just thought I wrote all blah, 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 blah. I wrote all the chords, I wrote all the lyrics, I wrote all the harmonies, I wrote da, 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 in about two hours. Wow. And don't ask me what, even what I'm singing about. And I've never changed one lyric since. Who knows? You know, I see 4,000 Germans this summer singing, I've been in love before, you know, and I'm, I'm quite happy. Died in Your Arms was a specific story. Okay. Would you mind telling that one for me? Well, I was uh, in a steady relationship and we split up and uh, I, after about three or four months of chasing, finding I found her at a party in London and we spent the night together that night and the following morning, I literally sort of crawled out of bed and wrote down on a bit of paper, I just died in your arms tonight. Uh, I just, I'd said it and I, yeah, I'm sorry, it sounds so crass, especially to women, but, um, you know, it's, um, it was what I thought, and I thought that would make a great title, and it did. And uh, that's all I really want to talk about it. But that was the title, and you know, titles are everything. I really, you know, you look at your Bowie albums behind you, look at his titles. That uh, I hate a title if it says something like, um, I'm the one, or you say goodbye. It's like there are millions of words in this language that we can use, even if they're not in the song. Make your title interesting. Yeah, I just think we've got a hook. Yeah. And of course, it's, history speaks for itself for that song. The title work, title works on so many levels for so many people. I can tell you a million stories of people thinking about death, mm-hmm. thinking people thinking about sex, people thinking about love, um, regret, uh, a jubilation. So yeah, I, I hit I hit the hot spot with that title. When you were recording the album, was it a quick album to make? Was it fast when you were making broadcast, or did it take a while? It was incredibly slow, but incredibly fast. We went to America and recorded uh, "Dying Your Arms," and I'd been in love with four. I'd been in love with four. Was immaculate, and he's the one you know. That was done. "Dying Your Arms" sounded like a pub band, <laughs> and I took it back to the record company, and they said, "Great, okay, let's get this song out." And I went, "If you release that, I'm leaving the band." You've got 10 seconds to decide. It's a true story. Wow. And they said, what? They said, what? I said, no, nine, eight, <laughs> seven. And I was a nobody. I, I, I had no power, but I knew that song was special. And so they went, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. calm down, calm down. Um, so we, we then brought an American producer over uh, and uh, he made it sound interesting, but it was still wrong. Eventually, I called my mate Terry Brown, the Rush producer from Toronto, and said, Terry, what are you doing this week? And he went, I think in the middle of the night, he went, oh, I've got a week off, I think. I said, do you want to come to London, Air Studios, record Cutting Crew? <laughs> and from that moment on, it was like, click, 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 click. It was a beautiful thing to watch. Fantastic. And was you, was you touring a lot with the band at the time? We were the uh, Cutting Crew. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah, we were absolutely everything that we hadn't done before. Every member of that band were live musicians all our lives. All we ever knew was turning up and playing gigs. And suddenly somebody said, you've got a record deal. You're now going to go into the studio for a year. And it was like, what? You know, so when we finally made the record, we we weren't even really a band. And that's why the press hated us, that we had this hit record. And we weren't, you know, they haven't their chops, they haven't on there but of course we all had we'd all done it more just as much as Paul Weller just as much as The Clash you know but we had the audacity to be young and pretty and and weren't a real band so I I get it I mean you you probably got most of your exercise on the video of um, Died in Your Arms Tonight where you're running around constantly for like (laughs) how long did that take to shoot was that a long video that was one day um, a young lad his first video ever um, he did a good job It, it, it was odd and quirky and uh thankfully the end shot was a one take you know with about four cameras so i only had got to do it once yeah so they were saying just do anything so me running around taking my jacket off and bumping into people and all that it was uh yeah it was nice moment and do you know what i i used to kind of think it was it was all right video but over the years it, it does stand the sense you know it, it's a bit it's slightly different uh than, than many other videos and yeah good and it's had like 85 million views or something. Wow. So 
it must be doing more. What I love about it is it's so minimal. There's loads going on with nothing going on at the same time. You're just running around. Yeah. But it's still a really engaging video. It's wow. fantastic. I mean, that coat, Thank you. You, that's all right. I mean, that coat you wore, you could probably sell that now for quite a bit because it's quite an iconic jacket, isn't it? <laughs> Do you still own it? I've got it up in the lost, yeah. Got it out the other year and uh, dusted it down. And still fits. No way. <laughs> Amazing. It was, um, it, it kind of happened by accident because Kevin always wore a long coat, long dark coat, trench coat. And um, he walked in, and when we had the meeting with the stylist, because again, you know, I don't care telling it now because, you know, we, we've moved on so many years, but we weren't a real band. You know, I had my look in the drivers. I knew exactly that military, the string vest, the military braces, and all that. You know, we, that, we never kind of who, who are you? What are you? So we brought the stylist in, and she saw Kevin's long jacket, and she went, hmm. So he got a really nice tailored version of that. And I that coat we became as Jack, the men in the men in coats i think we were introduced by janice Lowell on top of the box <laughs> oh i like that and then uh so the album comes out it does really really well and then there's a bit of a break between the first one and the scattering was that just due to right writing and touring at that point or was it management problems i don't want to dig too deep into if there's problems but no i don't want to it was the worst thing ever really you know we we We've done everything we wanted to achieve, a, a dream, you know, grabbing organization number one all over the world, America. Um, and then management uh, split, so there was nobody at the helm. And I remember starting to record the scattering, list, you know, getting phone calls from Madonna's manager and all those manager and all these people. You know, I was heady days. <clears throat> I think it all got to me too much. Lost my voice for about six weeks, put it back a bit more. And then the American record company were, um, they were all right, but, you know, they wanted another day in your arms. That's all they were going to sell for. And, right. and I said, well, I mean, I'll try my best. It doesn't really happen like that, does it? You know? <laughs> and I think that Scattering is a beautiful, beautiful album. And there's a couple of couple of weak tracks on it, but everything on that, it worked perfectly for me. So Kevin was getting angry at this delay. And they kept saying, go back and record more. So he said, let's write something for those effers and um, we wrote <laughs> between a rock and a hard place and if you listen to the opening riff down da, da, down da, 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 it's died in your arms backwards <laughs> and the lyrics are all about you know a, about basically if you saw the most the screen now guys you know two fingers up to the river company we gave it to them we went that's it that's the one thank you guys thank you that's the hit <laughs> I mean, I love Reach for the Sky. That's a beautiful track on there. Thank you. Um, recorded it all in Sussex and a place near, a place called Arling Line. Uh, all moved in, stayed up too late, took too many chemicals. It all went on and on and on, you know. Um, but I think there's some, there's some everything with my pride. I think it's a beautiful song. Um, and yeah, but it was done and it was released and it did okay. But by then we were, we were, we, we toured, we toured three or four times with a very good tours because by then we were a band. Yeah. We really knew what we were doing. Um, and if you look at the Town & Country live on, on YouTube, you'll see that the full concerts available. You'll see a really good happening band. But it was now 1989, and you know the music business was changing by the second. Um, we are over in Bel Air, you know, sitting in Virgin with Records, and then we walked Janet Jackson, who'd just been signed, and then would and there were all these great British fans, Lena Cherry, Soul to Soul. You know, music was becoming very urban, very cool, and, and, and brilliant, frankly. Yeah. And I suppose you know, us guys with our big hair and jackets <laughs> uh, <laughs> were looking slightly ludicrous. Like the dads had just arrived to pick up the kids. Of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll quote you on that one. Though, but free. That's amazing. So obviously, naturally, cutting crew wound down. Did, did you go into just sort of writing for other artists at this point? Did you know what you were going to do next, or were you kind of just not lost? But did you think, oh, you know, I just like the Bee Gees did when disco kind of disappeared? Do you think I'll just write for people, produce that kind of thing? Yeah, Kevin joined Robert. Um, I signed a very, very handsome uh, publishing deal. We lived in Barbados for four years, wow. and I wrote songs. So of course, if ever anybody wanted to write a song with Nick, you're living in Barbados, they were queuing up. <laughs> um, I, I wrote with Steve from Marillion. I wrote, uh, I wrote for Bonnie Ray. Time uh, written for um, 
you know, oh, the instrument life comes. What, was it right that you, you did something with Sure? Uh, between Scattering and the Compass Mentis album, Kevin and I were, you know, just writing and churning out stuff. And we got asked to um, to produce a record in, a, in Seven Oaks. <laughs> just found the corner from here. Yeah, down the road. A bunch of guys, a couple of guys who'd written the song and um, got a guitar in here. They they liked I've been in love before, so it's like, been in love before, I've been in love before. So that second chord, been in love before, and they got this. Do you believe in love? They it actually at that stage went. Do you believe in love? I've love, and I changed it to. Do you believe in love? I've love. Sorry about the singing, folks. Um, <laughs> well, I. We changed it. We made. We changed the melody on 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 a song. We changed the chords. We got paid a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I love it. I <laughs> Half a bottle of whiskey. And seven years later, I'm in my studio, and um, I think I was hoovering or something. There's something, there's something noisy, and I could hear in the background on the rip. Turn the Hoover off, and I went. I know that. I know that. In the second, the telephone rang, and it was the guy, one of the lads who was in that band, and he said, "We're on the radio." And I said, "What are we doing?" He said, "Yeah, sure. <laughs> of course, it went on to be one of the biggest selling records in history. Uh, yeah, definitely of the late nineties. It was huge. It was huge. And you've still got your bottle of whiskey, I hope. Um, I've, I can taste it. Yeah, I can taste it. What a great song, you know. That's some, that's some of the good bits because that lad did extremely well out of it, and. And the other lad in the band went on to become, he's produced, I think, 30 number ones now. So wow. it's all good. You know, you, you, sometimes you, I, 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 you know, like I try and think about these golf players that have joined this Saudi Arabian golf tournament. You know, how much more money do you want? You know, how much more money? I, they're the richest people on the planet. And they go, I'm going to go and play golf in Saudi Arabia because I'll get five million pounds every time I turn up. And Rory, Rory McIlroy said to them, how much money do you need? <laughs> I mean, you've had an amazingly prolific career. You've it's just been amazing, and you're, you're still writing today, still touring and recording. Yeah, absolutely. Busier now than busier now than ever. I'm just come back from a week in Mexico with uh, boy George. Um, we have uh, all through the summer we were in Germany playing the full band, five piece band, and a trio version, which I love playing. Right. Um, so you can play all of our news, make it big or small. Um, and uh, we play not we did an orchestral tour earlier in the year because the last album, Ransomed Hero Restored Forgiven on vinyl, nice. was recorded with Prague Philharmonic. Um, uh, I think that's one of the yeah, proudest moments of my career. I'm very very proud of that album. Would you ever sort of go back and re-record your songs again, like Rock and Roll Fall and, and the older early starting songs? Would you ever do those again? Let me think about this. No. <laughs> Nah, they they are what they are, and they are seventies, and they're brittle, and they're naive, and they're sweet, and maybe quite good. Um, I'd like to have a go at some of the driver stunks. Oh yeah, uh, cool. I couldn't play them. I could. We got back together once for a party, and we put the original on, and went one, two, three, four. We were we couldn't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. We're fit, you know. We're fit, and um, you know, not old and decrepit, but we played. Oh, frantically then. It was amazing. Well, you forget how fast we played. So what's your, what would your relationship with uh, Dardy in Your Arms be today? Do you, do you love it? Are you sort of just used to it? Is it like a friend to you? Mm, very much. Um, I think I went through a phase when uh, when the band split up, you know, and it was like, well, that's, that's it. That's probably it now for me. I'll go back and, you know, play the pubs or whatever. But, of course, the career's gone on and on. I've written hits for other people. Um, the song itself, has kind of almost metamorphosized a little bit lyrically because as you get older, you know, that died in your arms can mean many things. And I've recorded it. You'll see some on YouTube where I'm just me on my own, one with my daughter. And um, it, it, it can still mean everything to anybody. But that's the magic of that song. You know, I don't mind saying it. You know, I wrote it, but it doesn't mean I'm a genius. But sometimes we write magic songs and whether you love it or hate it, it works, and it will work forever. And it works in any language, in any country. You know, I've been privileged to have people on the holiday going, we're in Namibia, we just heard that in your arms. 
I'm in Iceland. We just, you know, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. And so I'm very proud of it. Musically, I think it stands up. Um, and yeah, it's one of those 80s things. But I think my most controversial thing I say is that um, I grew up in the 70s and I adored 70s music, Bowie 70s, you know, Led Zeppelin 70s. And um, the 90s, you know, like the kind of the, the, the shoe-staring uh, verbs and so on. I don't, the 80s, I didn't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no. You can quote me on that. And uh, and I love you, Nick Kosher, and I love you, Go West, and I love you, Carol Decker, and all that. But as a, as a decade, when people go, you know, it was the finest decade. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, to me, like the 80s is the new 60s in, in the sort of generations that are coming up. It's got that kind of mystical sort of... You know, I was there, but I don't remember it kind of vibe. <laughs> going on. That's a bit of that. Yeah. You know, when Kevin died, the sad, as well as it being still sad to stay in my life, um, he took with him all the stories because I was the pop star at the front. So after every show, I get whisked off to some interview or, you know, or before the show or photo shoots and, you know, not complaining. Kevin would just, you know, sit there with this cigarette watching it. Wrestling. And when it was all over, I'd, I'd say, and he'd go, do you remember that night in Chicago? And I'd go, no. <laughs> he'd go, you remember that time when? And i go, oh, my God. And, you know, he remembered everything because uh, he was quietly watching, whereas I was, you know, charging around like an idiot. So when he died, you know, I know he didn't write anything down, or at least I don't know he did. Um, yeah, he took a lot of those lovely stories, the very, very 80s stories, wink, wink. <laughs> So if people want to find out about what you're up to, where's the best place to go for that? Well, Facebook, we have Cutting Crew Music. It's called Cutting Crew. I don't think there's another score in the Cutting Crew Music on Facebook. We have a website, uh, cuttingcrew.biz. Um, yeah, we, we post everything there. There's bands in town for gigs. Uh, but really, for, for me, it's, you know, I've enjoyed this because it's I like it when it's chronological. It suits my, my old brain. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> But no, next year we're um, off again, orchestral tour, Germany again. Uh, we have every now and again us poor pop stars have to suffer these outrageous gigs. In March, we fly to LA and get on a boat, you know, for 10 days. Oh, terrible. And, you know, awful. <laughs> I mean, what could happen? I could fall overboard. You know? <laughs> get seasick, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's that old folks to Louise Cliff. I saw we chose um, that we chose our name. <laughs> I thought he was going to say Folkestone. <laughs> uh, Nick, it's been wonderful talk today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been brilliant. Bye -bye. This show is produced, edited, and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review.